Good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Good to have our campuses join us in Stevens Point and Appleton as well, you guys. And uh, this is our second to last uh, Wednesday night Bible study for uh, the first part of this year. We take off for the summer because I feel led to be on my boat. Praise God. Hallelujah. Actually, yeah, everybody just, we slow down for the summer. It's summer. It's so short. Enjoy it. All right. And then we'll start up again in the fall and continue. We're actually finishing up our study of the Old Testament uh, that we've been going through for the last couple of years. And uh, we are, we've been through a cluster of books that are kind of like wrapping up the whole uh, last writings of the Old Testament. It's as God is calling back the people of Israel back to Jerusalem, and they're rebuilding the temple, and uh, you know they have all their challenges yet. We read how Esther went through. They all tried to, one guy tried to kill all the Jews, and they survived through that. And we read the different prophets at the time of uh, um, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi, which is the last prophet. Uh, in the Old Testament. It is the last book in the Old Testament. It's, it's the closest to anything that's chronologically laid <laughs> I don't know what they were drinking when they laid this stuff out. But these books are all over the place. They're not in any kind of chronological order. Actually adds to the problem of reading the Old Testament because it makes no sense. It's really difficult. If you uh, get a chronological Bible or something that kind of lays out and you can actually read it in order, ah, it makes a whole lot of sense. Otherwise, it's like, what is going on? So we've been wrapping that up. Uh, we just finished Ezra, and now the final book, Nehemiah, the final book writing about the rebuilding of uh, the city of Jerusalem, calling the Jews back to Jerusalem. And this is God's hand moving and bringing them all back. Uh, it probably it wraps up about 500 years before the birth of Jesus. It takes us time, hundreds of years, for everything to start growing and blossoming and repopulating the cities and... Uh, and then Jesus comes. So uh, let's take a look at it. This is Nehemiah, uh, a contemporary of Ezra. A lot of these things were all happening at the same time. Parts of Daniel, Ezra, all those books I just mentioned were all happening at the same time. It's like, woo! It's quite a busy time, if you will, uh, as God is calling these people back. It's quite stunning. So we get to uh, Nehemiah. Now, the difference between Ezra, Ezra was a priest. Uh, Nehemiah is not a priest. He's uh, more of an administrator. And uh, he was a highly intense man and a serious butt kicker, which we'll get to the end of it. Uh, next week, you'll see how he grabbed people and beat them, <laughs> pulled their beards. You're <laughs> called curses down on them. These are people who weren't behaving themselves in church. Pay attention. So, uh, uh, so he's highly intense, very dedicated. Let's take a look at it. Nehemiah, the first chapter, for verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, uh, this is the Jewish calendar. I think that month is actually kind of November, December in our calendar year. It was in the, uh, in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, 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 <laughs> good grief, one of my brothers, who was one of his brothers, comes from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And it was a remnant. It's a stunning how few of them survived. It was a bloodbath when Nebuchadnezzar came in and wiped them out as God had warned them. So there's a remnant, they're considered the remnant. This is the, this is the final survivors of all that. And now uh, Ezra has gone back uh, and miraculously got 
the favor from Cyrus and then Darius and then Artaxerxes and, uh, and, and to rebuild the, uh, the temple. So this is still going on. Still just as, and most of the Jews still weren't there. Most of the Jews stayed, actually, in Persia uh, as God is slowly calling these people back. So he says, you know, what's going on? What's happening there? And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great, and are in, back in that province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. It's all part of Nebuchadnezzar's blizzard of destruction that he brought. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, and he starts to pray. We'll take a look at this prayer. He says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. That's why they're in the mess in the first place. All the judgment of God, they're now in a place of repentance, crying out to God, repenting, turning away from their sin, confessing their sin. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, and oftentimes you see people pray like this, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, and uh, they are reminding God what he said. It's actually a good way to pray. When you pray and in your prayers, and you can take a scripture verse and say, God, you said and you just speak the words right back to God. It's a powerful way to pray. So he said, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, so that's why he's quoting it, because they're returning now. If you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people, are, exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as, uh, as my dwelling for my name. Uh, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand, referring specifically to coming out of Egypt. Uh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting favor in the presence of this man. What man? He goes on to clarify, I was cupbearer before the king. So he's looking for opportunity to beseech king at Xerxes now. Uh, when... Uh, uh, Ezra is talking about Artaxerxes. I think he says in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. Well, now this is a little later, as we read in chapter two, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So that's a further down. When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. He was the cupbearer. That's his job. That's his job. Give him what he wants to drink. I had not been sad in his presence before. Uh, and you have to understand, these people lived, while they were extraordinarily blessed, even back to Esther and, their, and those, the Daniel and these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, to have been raised to such a high status before these kings, uh, it was always a dangerous place to be because if you so much as irritated them, so much as like a fly would irritate, they'd kill you. Uh, we read how the kings, king tried to kill Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Darius tried to throw Daniel to the lions down. I mean, it was always one thing or the other. These guys would get ticked. Uh, how um, with Ezra, how uh, not Mordecai, but Haman, you know, just has a conversation with the king, and he basically gives him the permission to wipe out the whole race. I mean, these guys had power. They had the power of life and death, and they lived in great fear. So he points out, I had never been sad in the presence of the king before. Just not being in a good mood around the king would be enough for a death sentence. 
So I had never done this before, but you know, I was so overwhelmed. He says, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And he says, I was very much afraid. Of course he's very much afraid. This is highly risky to even draw attention to yourself in any way before these kings. You're the cupbearer. You're not here to be seen, not heard. Actually, you're not even to be seen. <laughs> Just hand me the cup and get out of the way. All right? So he's, oh my gosh, the king's talking to me. He can tell I'm upset. And he says, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. They were saying that, kissing up to these guys. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, speaking of Jerusalem, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said, what is it that you want? Well, now he's praying, see, ahead of time. God, give me favor as he's fasting and praying to go before the king. What, is it, what do you want? And then I pray to the God of heaven. My guess is an extremely short prayer. Because he's talking, he's like, oh, God. And then he starts to talk. He says, uh, I pray to the God of heaven, and I answer the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, they would always refer to themselves in the third person. You know, if your servant, meaning themselves, all right? Uh, they were never to be so arrogant as to refer to themselves as I and me. Because in a sense, they didn't really exist. I'm only here because I exist for you. I'm your servant. Please, hear the words of your servant. If, if we say that today, we go, who are you talking about? <laughs> They're talking about themselves. All right, so if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting right beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. He doesn't tell us the time. At least I'm not aware of it. It's recorded anywhere, but we'll see if we run across it. Uh, then the king, uh, yeah, so he said, when are you going to come back? So I set a time. This one will come back. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters uh, to the governors of Trans-Euphrates? Uh, and basically, you know, give me all the permission and the right to be able to go back and, uh, you know, do what I want to do. So the king gives him these letters, which was a very powerful tool. When you had the letter and the, the signet you know, of his ring on your whatever, you know, everybody paid attention. Verse 10, when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. They hated the Israelites. These are the people who are living around the Jews in what few of them are left in Jerusalem. They despise them. They love the fact that everything had been destroyed. He says, I went to Jerusalem. After staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put, on, put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And this is an interesting thing, too, here. There's no record here that God told him to do any of this. Uh, he prayed. This was a burden on his heart. He wept at the very thought. Uh, sometimes God will just put a real heavy desire on your heart to fight for something and to do something and to accomplish something. You say, well, I never heard God say to me. Uh, quite frankly, most of the people I know never hear God tell them much of anything. I know all you got to do is watch most religious broadcasting. They're always like, God told me this, the Lord told me that, and everybody thinks that's, that's normal. That's not normal, quite frankly. I think they're a little delusional, some of these guys. But, uh, you know, sometimes God will, as clear as hearing a voice, will speak to you. Uh, but most of the time, it's in other ways. And God had put something really on his heart. He knew that what he was doing, this burn, this desire, had come from God. And uh, so he set out. I hadn't told anybody what uh, God had put in my heart. There were no mounts with me, talking about horses, except the one I was riding on. 
By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. <laughs> Here's a place you don't want to hang out. Why was there a dung gate? It was the land of horses, baby. It had to go somewhere. So apparently that's where the dung went. They were examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. I mean, everything's just destroyed. So I went up by, uh, the valley by night. He's walking now, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back, re-entered the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because I had yet said nothing to the Jews or to the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. So they replied, well, then let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So he's talking to uh, uh, the people. Uh, he hadn't said anything up to this point. But now he's talking to the Jews and to the priests and to the nobles uh, of the time. You have to understand this is you know, 2,500 years ago, uh, even an, up until recent history. There wasn't any such thing as a middle class. You either had money or you, your life sucked. Okay, uh, There were the nobles who had money. People didn't really have employees back then. They had servants and slaves. That's, that was your job, unless you were self-supporting on a piece of ground that you could own yourself, and didn't necessarily mean they were wealthy, but then they had the nobles, you know, so these are the guys who had money and the successful guys and stuff, so they, they, they brought everybody together, and they said, okay, let's do it, man, let's, let's rebuild this thing. Already the temple had been rebuilt, but the city was still in ruins, the wall was down. Well, then Sanballat and Tobiah uh, and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So then uh, they start building the wall. And if you read chapter 3, it'll go through and tell who built what. The fish gate, you know, this gate, that gate, the valley gate, the, you know, all the, they go through and they tell who is responsible. And, uh, you know, just again, this is a very historical record of how they rebuilt it, and specifically who did what. And quite frankly, I don't care. So go to chapter four. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubbles burned as they are? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> but they were mocking, said it can't be done. They can't do it. They can't do it. Now, uh, as we're about to read, the level of intensity that these guys worked at is stunning. We'll get through it. A lot of times you got to read to the end to find out exactly, put it all in context. But they rebuilt this entire wall, this up in 52 days. I mean, this is a massive rebuilding effort. It's stunning what they did. They did it so fast that it just took these guys by surprise. They were overwhelmed by it. They knew they had to act fast because they would have surely risen against them to stop them. They were threatening them, mocking them and stuff, but they had no idea that they could pull this off as fast. They worked around the clock. It was an, a very in, incredible effort. Hi, baby. It's my granddaughter. I'm going to say hi. Hi. You beautiful thing. Oh, you're distracting me. Now, okay, so. 
<laughs> She's waving at me. All right, what was I talking about? So anyways, it was all really intense. So they're mocking them. You guys can't accomplish anything. Well, in verse 4, he prays, hear us, O God, uh, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. I mean, <laughs> this is how they prayed back then. We're not supposed to pray that way. When someone ticks you off, you're not supposed to pray, God, I pray he rots in his grave, okay? That's not exactly a Christian worldview. In fact, Jesus came along and said, look, you have heard it said, curse your enemies, you know, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. He said, but I tell you, love your enemies. When Jesus came, he turned it so dramatically around. Because up at this point, they prayed that their enemies would be destroyed. Read Psalms, man, some of the curses they prayed on these guys. So verse six, so we've rebuilt the wall uh, till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come out and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out. They're getting tired, guys. There's so much trouble. We can't rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them. We'll kill them, put an end to their work. And then the Jews who lived near the area came and told them 10 times over, whatever you turn, they will, whenever your turn, whenever you turn, they will attack us. In other words, you know, oh, you guys don't get them mad because they're going to come kill us after they kill you. So what he's laying out here is how everything is going wrong. Everybody's turning against them. They're in this frantic effort uh, these guys said, we're going to come down and kill them all and uh, put an end to the work. The Jews that were around the earth, hey, man, don't take these people off. The laborers saying, guys, we're tired. We can't do this. I'll tell you, whenever you start doing something for God, it's stunning the resistance that you will run into and how people will point out, you can't do this. It's a disaster. You're a failure. Uh, everything's in a bad enough situation. Boy, it's like when we started Celebration Church. Whoa, all the words of encouragement that came at us. You know, good night. And at some point, you just got to ignore it. If you know God's something, something on your heart, you go for it. Now, you think, well, wait a minute. If God's for you, why are they having problems? <laughs> Glad you asked. Because you'll have problems. All right? Just because God is with you doesn't mean you're not going to have problems. Don't be surprised when you start doing something for God and everything hits the fan. Somebody say amen. amen. It's hard. It's hard. The Bible never said this stuff is going to be easy. Jesus gave a wonderful promise. In this world, you'll have trouble. You'll have tribulation. Well, there's a great promise. He says, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Doesn't say you're not going to be tempted. They're not going to say you're going to reach out and strangle somebody. And there's days where people just frustrate you to no end. They tick you off and say things to you and criticize you. And if you let that crush you, you're just in a corner all day and cry. <laughs> Everybody hates me. But you can't let that stuff stop you. You got to keep, keep it on. Especially when you first come to Jesus, man. Everybody in your life is shocked that you all of a sudden got religion. And now they're giving you nothing but grief. Your parents will give you grief. Your brothers and sisters will give you grief. Your cousins will give you everybody. Everybody tell you you're crazy. You join the cult. You're out of your mind. And all the stuff that you'll have. This is a great analogy. So he says in verse 13, therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. I love this. All these threats came to us. So I responded by setting up people with bows and spears. He, was not to, he wasn't going to stop. Nothing was going to stop him. 
The more the threats come, the more they got prepared to fight a battle. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, this is like a speech out of Braveheart. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your families, for your sons, for your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Yes. Actually, he didn't have an Irish accent. But anyway, that's, you know, it just sounds better when you do it that way. So they're all jazzed. Yeah! <laughs> well, seriously, you got to think, yeah, we're all going to die, man. I'll tell you, this, guy, this guy's crazy, but yeah, we're going to do it. Because everything was against them. The odds were not looking good. So when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work. The other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Wow. The analogies on this picture are just stunning, huh? The Bible talks about how we're supposed to put on the whole armor of God. You know, even when we're out there enjoying great joy and stuff, there's going to be battles. That's when Paul wrote and said, listen, your battle is not against flesh and blood. It sure feels like it. <laughs> some of my biggest battles seem to be flesh and blood. <laughs> people, what a pain some people can be. But he reminds me, look, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against principality, spirits. You need to stand your ground. Put on the whole armor of God. Be prepared. I love these guys. With one hand, they were working. The other hand, they held a spear, a sword. How cool is that? Dun, 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 the music's building here. All right, so uh, da, 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 da. those who had carried materials did their work with one hand and held the weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. So I said to the nobles and the rest of the people, look, the work is extensive and spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. So that's what we're going to do. Whenever you hear the trumpet, which is not margarine, but this is the trumpet. That's an old commercial, huh? <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about, you're, you're a geezer, man. I'm telling you right now, that's bad news for you. If you have no idea, you're young. All right, so when you hear the trumpet, then uh, um, we're, I'm lost now. <laughs> oh, yeah, verse 20. Uh, then join us there. Wherever you hear the trumpet, then we all got to rush to that place. We're so spread out. We're going to walk. And when, as soon as we see it, wherever the trumpet blows, everybody run toward the trumpet, and our God will fight for us, <clears throat> which means they're going to fight. All right? So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workers by day. Neither I nor my brother nor my men or the guards with me even took off our clothes. But it had to reek after a while. <sighs> They just kept working. They didn't even show you the clothes. They had, each had his weapon. Even when he went for water, they never let their guard down. Always had their guards. Actually, if you ever go to Israel, I've never been to Israel, but they say it's quite fascinating. You get pictures of people who go to Israel. You look around, and everybody's got weapons <laughs> because they're, to this day, a nation that's constantly under attack. People walking around with you know, machine guns and everything else like that. It's just they're seriously armed to the teeth because of the great threat that is always against them. All right, so now then we get to chapter 5, and now it's kind of a, a dark chapter here. What happens now is, uh, so all this work is going on. Then you got the nobles, the businessmen, the money people, 
And you got all the poor people. Well, the money people are, well, help you out. And they're loaning them money and stuff like that. But they're charging them outrageous interest. These little snots were basically sucking the life out of their own people and taking advantage of the situation. So Nehemiah finds out. So the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews. In other words, we're countrymen. We're all in this together. And though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. They sold their kids. You say, well, that's terrible. Yeah. This is what they did back then. Uh, actually, I, there's this great article. I got to see if I can find this again on the, on the internet, how Christianity changed the view of children. Uh, children were not very cherished like they are in our culture today. In fact, I think we've gone overboard. People go crazy over the kids every five seconds and don't have their own lives. Then the kids move out of the house and they get divorced because they can't stand each other. Uh, but back in the day, people actually tried not to get too attached to their kids because they were, a lot of them didn't live very long. You know, it's kind of like, you know, don't get too attached to the dog. <laughs> you know, and if money was tough, you, you sold one of your kids. I mean, now this is so out of our mindset. It wasn't until Jesus came along and the disciples, it says, I was reading today in the book of Mark where, uh, the disciples were telling the kids, get these kids away from Jesus. Remember, Jesus rebuked them. He says, don't do that. Let these little children come to me, for such as this is the kingdom of heaven. Christianity dramatically changed the value of all human life. It's quite stunning. Because up until that point, people didn't think in those terms. Anyway, some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So their own countrymen are ripping them off to the point that the only way they can begin to survive is uh, they're actually selling their kids into slavery, even to some of them. Uh, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. He was kind of ticked off all the time anyway. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. You're dirty rats. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought, bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. They were just guilty of sin. Talk about taking advantage of a bad situation. So I continue, what, are you, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and avoid, avoid the reproach of the Gentile enemies? I, my brothers, and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest and give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and the interest you've been charging them. 1% of the money, grain, and new money. No, give it back. He's mad. He's really ticked. And in verse 12, they said, okay, <laughs> we'll give it back. We won't demand anything more from them. We'll do as you say. You know, he's an intense man. He's a major leader. He wasn't afraid of confrontation. And he got in these people's face, and they were in a life and death situation. And of course, it didn't take much to point out just what a terrible thing they were doing to their own people in this horrible situation. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I wasn't going to just take their word for it. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, this way may God shake you out of your house and possessions, anyone who doesn't keep this promise. 
so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Don't dig him off. He's got a temper. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people who took and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over the people. I'm in charge. Get out of my way. So, you know, uh, what he's basically describing was uh, the ones before them lorded it over the people. Sounds like some churches I know. You know, since he gives out, I'm on the board of elders. You got to do what I say. You know, they, they got all arrogant and snotty and uh, yeah, I'm a deacon in this church. Praise God. Yeah, well, shut up. So anyway, so they were, they were do it, they would take money from the people, and they had their own special allowance that they got. Uh, and he was a high guy. He was worthy of this allowance. He said, I didn't take it. I didn't take it. I'm a governor. I had the right to take it. I didn't take it. I didn't do what those guys did. Verse 16, instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. Um, that, 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 all my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. They weren't doing any uh, personal benefit. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. So at his table, he had 150 people that he had to feed, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. It wasn't just for him. <laughs> Nobody could eat that much. By the way, how many people can you feed with a cow? Anybody have an idea? If you're going to sit down for one meal, anybody have an idea? Any people raised on a farm? How many? 500, you think? No, actually, it says here that there were 150 of them. But you think you could do 500 people? Well, again, they ate probably three times a day off of the same deal. So, so anyway, this is about the amount of food that it took to feed all these guys uh, and, the, and the sheep and stuff like that. Uh, in spite of all this, I never demand, uh, demanded the food allotted to the governor. I didn't take what was rightly mine because the mans were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for I've done all this for your people. So he's basically pointing out, I didn't take what was, I should have gotten. I turned it down. Uh, I was responsible for feeding all these people under my hand. These are the 150, three times a day plus. He said the others that came from the restaurant. Who knew how many were there? So that's about right then, about the amount of food. Uh, you know, not good if you're the cow. But uh, every day, <laughs> you know. And uh, so he was feeding all these people. All right. So how are we doing? Okay, so chapter 6. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let's get together. Let's have a beer. Relax. Do a little chatting over on the plain of Ono. But they were just scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? He's really intense. Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave him the same answer. No, we're busy. We're busy. Now, you think, you know, take off an afternoon, you know, come on down for, you know, so we can talk. Well, he knew they were up to no good, and he wasn't going to stop. He was so focused on completing the task that God put on his heart. It's quite stunning. Anyway, the fifth time, Sanballat sent this message. 
uh, with an unsealed letter, and it was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. You know, Geshem, he never says it's a lie. He's always a nice guy. That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so you better come and meet together with us. So it's basically saying, here's the rumor. You guys are planning a revolt. Nehemiah, you're planning to make yourself king. You even got your own prophets, and they're going to say, oh, here's this new king the Lord has established. And on. Boy, then the you know, king's going to come and cut your throat. So you better. You better come meet with us, because I'm hearing this rumor. Geshem said it's true. You know, well, they're all liars. So, uh, so they're trying to intimidate him. And uh, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making up, up out of your head. <laughs> Go away. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. It, it won't be completed. I mean, they're stunned at how fast it's growing. They can't keep this up. How can they even possibly do this? So God is clearly with them. Their level of dedication for all of them is stunning because of the work that they're doing. And I prayed, strengthening my hands. Now, one day I went to the house of, I'm not going to read all these names. I don't, anyway, and so this guy went to this guy's house. And he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. And let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you by night. They're coming to kill you. But I, which wasn't true. He's just trying to set him up. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I mean, again, the level of fearlessness and intensity this guy Nehemiah has is quite stunning. Oh, Lord, let some of that run off on us. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They paid him money to do that. He'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and, which he shouldn't be going in that temple like that. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, he's praying again. Because of what they'd done, let him rot to death and all this other kind of stuff. So they were, you know, always praying bad prayers on these guys. Verse 15, so the wall was completed on the 25th day in 52 days. It's quite stunning. I mean, they did it fast. Bypass their enemies. It's quite, it reminds me of that Irish blessing. May you be in heaven a half hour before the devil knows you're dead. You know, so here these guys did it. And when our enemies all around us heard this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him. This is rotten again. It sounds like Braveheart. You remember how the, you guys see that movie? How the nobles basically sold him out. They're always in league with uh, uh, the king of England and whatever. And so he says, those snotty guys, they were still sending letters to these people and stuff like that. But uh, he basically, he didn't listen to them. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. After the wall had been rebuilt, I had set uh, the doors in place. The gatekeepers, the musician, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. Oh, but wouldn't it be great if people could say that about us, huh? I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, <clears throat> while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them. 
Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards. Again, they're still under heavy uh, threat from their enemies. So they're being very cautious. Now, the city was large and spacious, but there were a few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, uh, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. These are the people of the province who came out and blah, blah, blah. Then you read, and he just goes through. And he starts telling uh, how many people. Uh, Is there a summary number anywhere? The whole, there it is, chapter six, verse 66. The whole company numbered 42,360. Besides, there are 7,000 male and female slaves. They also had uh, 245 male and female singers. Uh, there were 736 horses, 254 mules. <laughs> Boy, people were really into details. <laughs> 435 camels and 6,720 donkeys. Now, now back in, look at verse 6. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, had taken captive. These are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity. Wow. It's, so it's a small number. You're talking 42,000 people. Now, some of the heads of the family contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury uh, 1,000 derricks of gold. I have no idea how much that is, but... Uh, um, 50 bowls, 530 garments for the priests. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury of the work. More gold, more silver. Uh, the total given to the rest of the people was more gold, more silver garments for the priests. The priests, Levites, the gatekeepers, everybody settled in their own town. Okay, now, chapter 8 is that Ezra now reappears. Remember, Ezra wrote Ezra. <laughs> Okay, and uh, I don't know if he wrote it or part of it he wrote, but anyway, it's the record of him doing what he did and all the stuff, and he was very intense for following the law, much like Nehemiah was for getting that building done. And, uh, and remember, that's what we read, where Ezra had gotten on the people because they had married foreign wives, which they weren't supposed to do, and then he made them divorce them all, and, uh, which I think he shouldn't have done. Uh, you know, some of the guys were opposed to it, but they did it. Uh, it's interesting. I showed you how in Malachi, which we believe he prophesied right about that time, God condemned the idea of divorcing your spouse and abandoning the wife of your youth. So but these guys were intense. Remember, this is just the beginning of what eventually becomes the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these really nitpicky people. I mean, they, went, they just swung so intensely. They were disregarding God's laws. And got in trouble. And then after they came back, they went, wow, way to the other side. And just started becoming legalists and pinheads about everything. To me, it seems it started right there with, uh, with Ezra. Um, they still had the problem. We'll read this toward the end. We won't get to it until next week as we finish this up. But uh, they still had problems with people intermarrying. That's when Nehemiah beat the snot out of them <laughs> over it. But at least at that point... He didn't demand that they divorce them, just told them they better quit doing it. 
Uh, so anyway, we'll get to that. I'm going to get ahead of the story here. But anyway, so Ezra gets up now, and he reads the law. He's still the priest. And so he reads the law, and, uh, you know, and then the Israelites, chapter 9, they all come together, and they confess their sins and kind of just relive their history. You can read it if you like. It's kind of a summary of the people of Israel. Uh, and then... Um, where are we at here? Then uh, they uh, did this big thing of repenting before God, and they sealed it, and they give the names in chapter 10 of all the people who were there. And again, the level of detail that these people kept is, is just absolutely stunning. They made promises uh, to give money. Uh, let's see, chapter 10, verse 28. Uh, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, a servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands. Of course, again, they really got crazy about it. That's what Jesus had to deal with when he came back or when he came, trying to straighten them out. All the regulations, the decrees. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or take their daughters for our sons. Uh, that whole thing. Um, they go on, they talk about the commitments financially that they're going to give uh, and uh, offering of uh, you know, ties and everything that they're going to bring to uh, keep everything going. It basically ends with the the very last verse, chapter 39, which is a very long verse, <laughs> but uh, it just ends with, we will not neglect the house of our God. So they make this real intense commitment. Uh, and then um, we get to an uh, end where they start wrapping it all up, and, uh, and we see how it finishes up, and that'll basically wrap up our study of the Old Testament. So we'll kind of go through this, wrap it all up, next week as we come to the end and start our summer. So praise the Lord. God bless you. Have a great night. We'll see you on Sunday.